Knock, knock. Who's there? Ben. Ben who? Been waiting for Coleween all year. <laughs> Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. This is episode 61, and it is our very special wrap-up of our 31 days of Halloween viewing, our second annual, The Magic Jack-O-Lantern of 2017. So this year, we selected kind of an interesting theme, I think. You chose films from 1972. I chose films from 1962. Yes, subtracting the films that we did for our regular episodes and the films that we played during the screenings that we host, which this year the theme was Ghosts. And we did four of those. We did each Saturday in October. Minus those, we divvied up the rest of the month, sort of going back and forth, 1962, 1972. And it was a fun selection process. What we normally like to do, we got to employ for this, scouring lists, tracking down different things, following those internet rabbit holes to find interesting choices from those respective years. And what would you say our success rate was? Uh, the whole, what, 20-60-20 ratio? Well, maybe I'm giving that 60% good I, a little too much credit. I think so. I think it's more 30-40-30 at okay. least. Plus, we just saw Ex Libris about the New York Public Library, the new Frederick Wiseman documentary. So that was incredible. I'm on a huge high from that. But I also had a massive headache... So I'm on some medication, <laughs> and we just ate Taco Bell. So it might get a little wacky in here. Now, having said that, I'm still pretty excited to get through this. And the first choice is yours. Right off the bat, from 1972, we have The Night Stalker, which is an old favorite. A TV movie directed by John Llewellyn Moxie from the creative minds of the producer-director Dan Curtis and the writer Richard Matheson, one of my absolute favorite horror writers. I'm sure a lot of our audience is familiar with it. It's about the intrepid reporter Carl Kolchak investigating a series of Las Vegas murders committed by what seems to be a vampire. It stars Darren McGavin and a bunch of old noir stalwarts, Ralph Meeker, Elisha Cook Jr., Charles McGraw, and good old ferret face Larry Linville from M.A.S.H., I don't know about you, but this show was hugely influential in my youth, and this was a super fun way to start. To your first point, it was not hugely influential in my childhood because I didn't see it then. It was a little bit before my time. I came to it as an adult, but it's very influential in my adulthood. I thought this was fun to come back to because I had watched the series, and this is actually a little bit of a sexier use of Kolchak. At one point, he actually has his shirt off. And he's got that romance with Carol Lindley. It's great direction. It's a super tight script. It's edge of your seat action. Great character actors from the period, as you mentioned. And a real highlight. This is a show that I don't think gets enough credit when it comes to its influence. Especially with shows like The X-Files. And especially within that, their Monster of the Week episodes. If not for The Night Stalker, we don't have any of that. Did you watch The Night Strangler, the second movie in this set? I did. What did you think of it compared to the first one? Better? Worse? You know, I think about the same. What I really liked about the second one is the setting and the use of underground Seattle, which I didn't know existed. That was a really neat set piece. Plus, the ending of that, I feel like, and I think we're going to actually come back to this several times, oddly, through this episode, presages... Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So we got off to a breezy start with sexy, hairy chest Darren McGavin. Where do we go next for you? We kick off 1962 with Carnival of Souls, directed by Herc Harvey with Candace Hillegoss. After a traumatic accident, a woman starts to notice odd changes in her waking life. I remarked several times during the viewing of this, and I think that you agree with me, this looks like no other film of that period. It's as if it's ultra-modern and yet in black and white. You know that it's taking place during the period. It's not so surrealistic in that respect. It's got great practical effects, terrific music, and the setting is so interesting to me. I like the use of regional actors, which all comes from Herc Harvey's background. 
The regional thing is another thing that I think pops up a lot in this go-round that we did this year. This one is always lurking as a pleasant surprise that I often forget how much I like. It really is one of my favorites. I'm often reminded every time we put it on. And what that comes from is the fact that Herc Harvey is a really solid filmmaker. You can see why he felt like his talents were not being fully utilized making industrial films. There are so many well-composed shots in this. Her feet in the mud when she's coming out of the river. I love that shot. That M.C. Escher type shot of the church organ that's just incredible. So many regional filmmakers at this time were turning out drive-in schlock like Teenage Strangler, and he was making true art. And now, back to 72. Speaking of true art, we turn to Horror Express, directed by Eugenio Martin and starring Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Telly Savalas. Set in 1906 China, it's about a British anthropologist who discovers a frozen prehistoric creature and who must transport it to Europe by train. I hope you have your bingo card out because this movie has everything. It has Rasputin, aliens, the Trans-Siberian Express, zombies, frozen ape men, H.G. Wells-style sci-fi. You mentioned Rasputin, religious fanaticism, evolution, the missing link, some sexy stuff, a whole bunch of tweed, and crazy Telly Savalas. And really deep down, buried in all of that craziness, a neat sci-fi idea about memory being stored in the ocular fluid. This one is mostly fun because of the star power. Or at least it starts that way, and then you realize they're throwing everything at the wall, and most of it sticks. It's not entirely successful, but it's successful enough to make for a super fun Saturday afternoon matinee. It's scary and weird and fun, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I especially liked what to me seemed like the real elements of it, the set design, the train, the snow, the setting, those felt like they were actually taking place there, which is odd to say when you're talking about suddenly Rasputin and aliens are in the movie at the same time. It still feels kind of grounded to me, oddly. Maybe I'm alone in that sentiment, though. In this room you are. Nothing about this movie (laughs) feels real. Okay, good point. But it's no less fun for that. Back to 1962, what do you have next? Well, we kept the uh, wacky train rolling with The Awful Dr. Orloff, directed by Jess Franco, with Conrado Sarmartin, Diana Loris, and Howard Vernon. The titular, truly awful Dr. Orloff, abducts beautiful women and tries to use their skin to repair his daughter's scarred face. This steals slash borrows freely from Eyes Without a Face, uh, Frankenstein. <laughs> it steals, yes. Steals. It turned out to be actually better than I thought it was going to, and it started off in a promising way, I thought. I really love the music in this. Morpho, who is Dr. Orloff's sort of Igor-like assistant, is genuinely creepy. However, <laughs> it has incredibly clumsy exposition. The worst detective I've ever seen. Terrible costume design in that it is absurd and laughable and everything should be ripped off of everyone's bodies. And generally is in certain moments. And at some point in the middle of this very odd music, somebody decided to invite a recorder player. But I digress. What did you think? It's not great. And that's coming from a Jess Franco fan. I really like Jess Franco. There are things that I like about it, but not enough that I could recommend it, probably. Agreed. Parts of the score I really enjoy. The daughter's makeup and her eerie silence throughout, I enjoy that aspect of it. But in addition to it being a ripoff of all those things you mentioned, there are just generally better period pieces for this sort of atmosphere, like The Lodger and Hangover Square. This is a bunch of stitched-together cliches even 50 years ago. Coffin Joe is better and more subversive. And it's like a Jack the Ripper convention with all the tuxedo top-hatted men running around the cobblestone streets. As Spain's first true horror film, it's useful as an artifact, but not really much more. Just Franco can be terribly uneven. And therein lies one of the pitfalls of using this sort of a theme for this episode, which we only really realized getting into it, because I definitely chose things that I had never seen before and some that I had. This was a new one. And it ended up being a dud, and there are going to be some more duds as well. And so that's not always the most fun thing in the world. But it is fun, though, to discover things. Which leads directly to the next choice that I made. A film called Neither the Sea Nor the Sand from 1972. 
directed by Fred Burnley. It's about a troubled wife who takes a seaside vacation to sort out her marital issues. She falls in love with a young man who dies on the beach, and that's where their relationship starts. With Susan Hampshire, Michael Petrovich, and Frank Finley. I think this one gets kind of a bad rap because of, among other things, some really poor scoring choices. That is a completely legitimate criticism of this film. But it deserves better because it feels, for the most part, as if Harold Pinter wrote The Monkey's Paw. It's more of a fantasy romance than a horror film, so maybe people need to adjust their expectations coming into it, but I really enjoyed this. I ended up loving this. This is actually my second favorite thing that we watched of the brand new things that I had never seen before. You mentioned that the death of her new lover is where this thing starts, but they do actually invest a great deal of time in the beginning part of this relationship. True, true. And to me, that really pays off because the moment when she is running wildly to try to find help, when she turns back to see that he has collapsed, is devastating to me. I felt that this was basically a documentary of what would happen to me if you died in the middle of one of our vacations. And then came back from beyond the veil. Yeah. You mentioned that score, and I think you're completely right. If they had taken the unnecessarily jaunty elements and and let it go more out of control at specific moments, I think it really would have worked better. And when you say jaunty, it sort of understates it, because they are two steps away from Yakety Sacks, basically. It's true. It felt like somebody else was called in at the last minute to try to lighten this thing up, which, if they had watched it, they would have realized, no, you've got something really good right. on your it hands. Didn't need it. And the transition that she makes in her character is really fascinating to watch. I, I really, really enjoyed this. I would highly recommend this. I would watch it again. I plan to watch it again. Well, in an odd bit of coincidence, we move from one pair of lovers at a lighthouse to another one with your next choice. Which is The Day of the Triffids, directed by Steve Seekley and an uncredited directorial turn by Freddie Francis, with Howard Keel, Nicole Morey, and Jeanette Scott after an unusual meteor shower leaves most of the human population blind, a Navy officer must find a way to kill these aggressive plants. And you mentioned lighthouses as well. There's this side plot that's happening concurrently, but unbeknownst to the other actors going on, where these two scientists, a husband and wife, the husband is a terrible alcoholic and the woman is his enabler, and they're in this lighthouse doing some biological research, and they're also trying to find a way to stop these plants at the same time. In choosing this, I didn't realize it was going to turn out to be my Atomic Age-ish sci-fi coolness that I love. Yeah, this one seems right up your alley in retrospect. It's got man against nature. It has the Atomic Era sci-fi. It has all the disaster film elements that you like so much. I just wish it had stayed in the realm of how society can completely break down very quickly. And I would have been fine if it had actually even left out the science part. The monsters, these crazy creeping plants, were really neat. It did feel like some sort of connective tissue had been taken out that would have linked those two sets of characters together. But oh well, I enjoyed it. It was fun, but it seemed like it was a little overlong. The things that you think might have been left out, I feel like they could have left even more out than they did, maybe. Agreed. They could have left that couple out entirely, as far as I'm concerned. And for filmmakers out there, as a helpful hint, don't make your most unlikable character the one that comes up with a solution to save the world. Because I don't care as much. And just to clarify, unlikable in a shitty way, not as in a challenging character way, just as in a, ugh, this guy's gross. And so we go from that to our first screening that we hosted, which was your choice. You mentioned we had a ghost theme this year, so I kicked it off with The Haunting. And also, as you mentioned, the screenings didn't apply to the yearly themes, so The Haunting is from 1963, directed by Robert Wise with Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, and Russ Tamblin. A scientist doing research in a haunted mansion brings in live participants and one of them, Julie Harris, really starts to lose her mind. I love Julie Harris so much in this film. Maybe my favorite thing that she ever did. Seldom do we see this much time spent on learning who a protagonist in a horror film is. 
especially in an ensemble piece like this. I can see it if it was a solo thing, but with so many other important characters, we get to know her better than any horror protagonist I think I know. There's so many great creepy touches that statue is sculpted with the veil across its face. And the house is such a character. Usually shooting a human character from beneath tends to make them feel imposing and larger than life. But shooting Julie Harris this way only serves to emphasize how imposing the house is because no matter how big she is, the house is still looming above her, behind her in every frame. The house is clearly the villain and she feels vulnerable constantly. Just a side note. She did a televised version of a one-woman show on Isaac Denison, and she is wonderful. She did it in her 70s, I think. It's great, but just by the way. So let me keep talking about Julie Harris, because she is fascinating, playing a fascinating character whom I don't like. Now, it's firmly established that I'm not exactly pro-basket case, but what is it that makes you not like her? It is that basket case nature, but at the same time, I'm still rooting for Julie Harris in this. Eleanor, through Julie Harris, has earned her frustrations. She has earned her pettiness, even. It's still infuriating to watch, but it is so organic. And I credit that also to Shirley Jackson's novel as well that they base this on. Robert Wise is no slouch when it comes to working with actors, either. This truly does scare me. And I think it is, again, the practical effects. They are very terrifying, and it is great to watch on a dark and stormy night. How do you think this one went over with our audience? A couple of things. I think that the people who liked it really liked it and were a little bit more open to it than a couple of other people I felt like maybe were a little young for the context. I also think, unfortunately, we did them a little disservice because... That film is mastered really low, and our previous setup, that we just improved our sound system, made it so that a lot of that interior monologue that Eleanor does was a little hard to hear, plus I think the louder the better with that one because you feel like the house is closing in on you as the characters do. And now we come to one where the audience of us two got the real shaft. <laughs> Next was The Curse of the Headless Horseman, directed by John Kirkland from 1972. Essentially, the story of a headless horseman that terrorizes a man and his hippie friends at the ranch that he inherits, which is the ranch you would go to if Spawn Ranch was too pricey and nice a destination. It is the subbiest, pariest thing <laughs> I think I maybe have ever seen. It stars Ultraviolet, who is a Warhol hanger-on, Marland Proctor, the most appropriately boringly named person I've ever seen, and a bunch of dirty hippies, including a caretaker played by B.G. Fisher, who is either the Carradine brother that got all the recessive genes or the scabbiest Dwight Yoakam that you've ever seen. All I could think coming to the end of this dumb thing was when is this going to be over? Finally, it was over. And this whole stupid scheme that I don't even feel like going into because nobody needs to watch this is that it was all concocted by an idiot and kids. This headless horseman seems more interested in wrecking people's clothes than chopping heads off. There's a tangent about gunfighter reenactors. <laughs> There's improv with hippies. This is the worst. Do yeah. not watch The Curse of the Headless Horseman. One person listening to this will get this, but the super annoying, druggy rapist guy looks like Tom Bray. Moving on to day nine, we have Horror of Dracula slated there, which we did an entire episode about. So if you haven't heard that, go check out episode number 59. Next is your choice and one of our favorites. We kept that fun train rolling with Burn Witch Burn. Now, are you implying that Curse of the Headless Horseman was part of the fun train? No, Horror of Dracula. Okay. I was linking those two together. Sorry. It was directed by Sidney Hayers with Peter Wingard, Janet Blair, and Margaret Johnston. A skeptical college professor, Peter Wingard in all of his tight pants glory, discovers that his wife has been practicing magic for years and that they also live among many witches. Now, we actually showed this, what was it, two years mm -hmm. ago for our Halloween series as well. And so I had seen it before. What occurred to me most in this viewing, and this I think was the first time during the month that it occurred to me and then I couldn't get it out of my thoughts outside of that, was how female-centric so many of our choices were. 
and will continue to be, we'll touch on it. But specifically in Burn Witch Burn, I felt like I was noticing for the first time the male-female politics in the film. We've got our two main witches against each other, Tansy and Flora, versus everyone else who seeks to minimize them, essentially, and minimize what they believe in and what they've been doing, which has been in service to these men. And these men have been almost hostile towards the women, and yet the women have been right and correct the whole time. And yet, what power do they ultimately have? But aside from those questions, it's just a great viewing. It looks wonderful, it's really tightly paced, it's well acted, a great fun piece. Well, it's another Richard Matheson, which is why I like it so much. It is lean, like you say, very efficient. And I think it does highlight that they are actually the ultimately most powerful characters in the whole story. They are the engine that drives it. Nothing happens without passing through them. And in addition to the gender politics, there are the terrible academic politics, which only further confirms how glad I am that I did not go into teaching. Now, this next one I felt like really jumped forward in time, and it was also not a theatrical release. Right. The next one is Night of Fear from 1972, which was made for Australian television. And considering how graphic and terrifying it is, makes me really want to see more Australian TV from that time period. But from what you're saying, I gather this is the first time you feel that we've moved into what would become the more transgressive era of 70s film. Thank you. Great way to say it. Where it really feels like more modern and interesting and almost auteur techniques are used. Well, it was directed by Terry Bork, and it stars Norman Yem and Carla Hugovan as characters who don't have names. There is no dialogue except for grunts and screams for 54 minutes. It is on the short side since it was made for television, but that only makes it more potent feeling to me. I was grateful that it wasn't a film length. Almost in the same way as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I want that to be over. I will just say this. When you see a crazed killer put his rat into his overalls so he can really get down to business, you know you're in for something. It's incredibly tense and high-pitched fear that doesn't stop. Well, it's about a young woman who crashes her car on a lonely country road and who is terrorized by a crazed hermit. So it's essentially a proto-Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like you mentioned, for the Down Under set. The thing I think that really strikes me the most is the amount of sexual deviance on display. It is aggressive and ugly. At one point, he appears menacing her as she's tied to a table with nothing but the bloody skull of the girl he captured before her covering his genitals. There are loaves of bread scattered around the kitchen with suspiciously penis-shaped holes in them. I think it's supposed to indicate the rats are eating it, but it looks for all the world like he is having sex with bread. Australia, what's up? This was probably the most envelope-pushing thing that we saw, I would think. It's hard to find. I had to go to Region 4, an Australian import DVD, to get it. It doesn't exist on the internet anywhere that I can find. But if you have a multi-region player and you're a big horror fan, it is well worth importing it. Speaking of cool imports, what do you have next? I have The Witch's Mirror. We're back to 1962. Directed by Chano Ureta with Rosita Arenas, Armando Calvo, and Isabella Corona. Also, talk about envelope pushing. We'll get to a specific element of that in just a moment. But this is about a husband who murders his wife, and said wife, years later, is able to emerge from a witch's mirror to take her revenge. Now, this is an old story. It's a story that we know. But what an amazing take and addition to it. It is astounding to me to watch the old housekeeper, the godmother of the first wife who was murdered by the husband, consorting with Satan openly. I mentioned that it's a story we know, and sort of like with the awful Dr. Orloff, we've got a mishmash of Frankenstein, and again, eyes without a face, the monkey's paw, hands of Orlac, all those things. So we've got these interesting things that came before, but I do feel like it gets progressed here. Is it that extra injection of melodrama that you find, for example, in Mexican soap operas? And I feel like it's the overt religiosity, however this being Satanism. Which can have been an easy thing to try to pull off as Catholic a country as Mexico is in 1962. It looks like a million bucks, too. It looks wonderful. 
So you add in that extra bit of subversion, and I think you've got something really special. I really enjoyed it. It is full of atmosphere, like you mentioned. And I just wanted to mention in particular, in this case, a company called Casa Negra put these out. They have since unfortunately gone out of business, but if you are a fan of classic Mexican horror, their entire catalog is can't miss. Every single title is worth picking up. Now we're staying in Mexico for your choice next, right? We actually have a trio of Mexican films right here in the middle. My next choice from 1972 was Doña Macabra, directed by Roberto Gavaldon. And it's about a couple of newlyweds who move into their aunt's house intent on finding the treasure they believe is hidden there. It stars Marga Lopez, who we will see two movies in a row, and Hector Suarez. There were parts of it that I liked, but I didn't like it as much as I wanted to. I really wanted to love it after all the things I'd read about this. I was hoping, I think, for smarter, more absurdist humor, because it is a black comedy. But this turned out to be as much Sabato Gigante as The Addams Family, which is what I was hoping for. It's definitely not great. It is fun. I do like the dark sense of humor, especially in the character of the brother and how much glee the two sisters take in all the things that they're pulling off. I do especially like Marga Lopez in this, and she is in The Next Choice. The Next Choice I had been trying to track down even longer than I had been looking for Doña Macabra. The next choice we did is one of our Halloween screenings, and that was Even the Wind is Afraid, which is one of the great titles I've ever heard. From 1968, directed by Carlos Enrique Taboada, it's about a group of boarding school girls who are kept on school grounds during spring break as punishment and who encounter the vengeful spirit of a former student. It stars the aforementioned Marga Lopez as the strict headmistress, Mara Cruz Olivier, who I think is my favorite character, Lucia, in the entire thing and Alicia Bonet, who channels the ghost of this dead student. I looked and looked and looked for this, and finally had to resort to the gray market to get a copy of it that had English subtitles on it. It had nice atmosphere, but it was light on scares. It had some of that religious subversion that we also saw in The Witch's Mirror. I think the thing I liked about it the most was how much of a turn it took midway through. It comes to a point at which you think, oh, this is the end. And then it takes a much spookier, more sinister turn, that requires a lot more out of Alicia Bonet as an actress, that part was my favorite part, I think. I do want to talk about the acting for a second, because this is actually a very large cast. And to have so many young women in it, so many young actresses, I was really struck by how hard they're working. I think everyone does a terrific job in it. And from the writing side, they each truly do have distinct personalities. My favorite scene is the striptease scene. One of the schoolgirls is sort of the loose, fun-loving one. And as she is doing this striptease, the other students watch her as if they are watching someone have sex with the devil in front of them. They are so (laughs) horrified and disgusted by this. I wouldn't say all of them. There's at least one of them that's terribly interested in what's happening. I also love, again, the subversion. The end is so matter-of-fact with the death of one of the characters that it's almost kind of fun. Didn't quite live up to expectations, but still worth a watch. Definitely. And now we have you to thank for the next one. Speaking of not living up to expectations, next we have Tragic Ceremony, directed by Ricardo Freda, also from 1972. A group of moderately attractive young people are gallivanting around the countryside. The one who looks like Cat Stevens is, I think, attractive. The other ones are kind of weird looking. They run out of gas and end up seeking shelter in a crumbling manor house where the owners are performing a black mass, and one of the group is intended to be the sacrifice. And that one of the group is what drew me to this in the first place, that's Camille Keaton, Buster Keaton's granddaughter, star of I Spit on Your Grave. But she is given absolutely nothing interesting to do. This had so much potential, but it turned out to be as much a rambling mess as the songs that that guy, who is the guy who shows up with his guitar at every party, plays every second he gets a chance. There is one great bit of practical effects where a head is split by a sword, and you can tell they were terribly proud of it because they tried to work it into the movie about six times via flashback and every other method. They definitely got their money's worth out of that four seconds. Yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) No plot, no action, no point. Not as bad as Curse of the Headless Horseman, but close. That's true, but close. And you would think with actors like Luigi Pistilli and Luciana Paluzzi that you could at least come up with some sort of cool sexiness. Nope. 
So in other words, it took no advantage of everything it had to offer, which was considerable, including a great setting and an experienced cast, but it really felt like it was directed by a first-timer or someone's nephew because everyone else was too busy getting high. But which, ironically, is definitely not the case because this director turns up again on our list and directed tons of movies back to the 40s. Yeah, it's crazy. I I really think that maybe he was tired for most of it (laughs) and he just said, hey, somebody else go ahead and take over this because it looks terrible. Does your next choice get us back on track, you think? No, not exactly. But I will say I did end up enjoying this more than I thought I would, especially based on the title, which is Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory. That is one of the greatest B-movie titles of all time, and hard to live up to. Yeah, and it didn't quite. But there were things I really enjoyed about it. It does kick off, it felt like the most 1962 movie on the list because it starts with this 1962 rock and roll song that bears no resemblance to anything that happens in the movie, but... I think I like this one a little better than you did. Is that right? Eh, maybe not. I mean, I did I did like it, okay. actually. Directed by Richard Benson with Barbara Lass, Carl Schell, who I consider the Ur-Maximilian Schell, and Kurt Lowens. We've got the aforementioned Girls' Dormitory, where several students are murdered by a snarling wolfman-like creature. I think one of the things that that downplays that title and that description is that it's actually a detention school. This is bad girl territory. It should have been called Werewolf at Girls Juvie, really. (laughs) I think what surprised me and why I ended up liking it is that it takes itself more seriously Mm. than the title would suggest. Ur Maximilian Shell is not great. There's sort of a Peter Lorre, not quite knockoff. But I did like the love story in it, the central love story that we find out towards the end that ends up being the downfall of the two characters. I liked that Barbara Lass was actually allowed to be a much smarter heroine than you got to see most of the time in 1962. So I actually put this one in the win column. Well, it does have a fair amount of atmosphere for what has to be absolutely no budget. And it is an interesting take on the werewolf mythos, so I would say... C plus, B minus? Yeah, I think that's fair. What do we have next? F plus. Yeah, that would be Night of the Lepus. I'll take full credit for that one. Also from 1972, directed by, and I'm using that term very diplomatically, William F. Claxton. A rancher with a rabbit problem calls upon local scientists who create an even bigger, literally, rabbit problem. It stars Rory Calhoun, DeForest Kelly, who I think is my favorite part of the whole thing, Janet Lee, and Stuart Whitman's hair which I was waiting the whole time for that complicated hairdo to blow away and revealed his baldness, but it did not. So somebody earned their money at some point. I will say this was our dog Gibson's favorite of everything that he watched because he watched all of them with us. This is the one that captured his attention the absolute most. His eyes were glued to the set the whole time. Our dog has terrible taste. Actually, that's not true because he also likes Jacques Tati. That's true as well. Anyway, this is a laughable attempt to cash in on one of your favorite genres, the whole nature strikes back thing. Bad effects, bad performances, bad writing. This is what you get when you send someone who knows how to make formulaic westerns to make a horror film. That's basically what William F. Claxton was good at. And good is, again, being generous. There are way too many instances of people like Janet Leigh and DeForest Kelly having to say score and bag. My biggest problem, however, is the little girl, their daughter, who causes this whole damn thing. Her complicity is never addressed. (laughs) You want her punished? Yes. Okay, well, hotshot, if you know so much, let's see you do better. Boy, I did not. (laughs) This was the real uh, low, the lull during the month. And that was Slaughter of the Vampires, directed by Roberto Mauri with Walter Brandy, Graziella Granada, and Luigi Bazzella. It's about a couple of idiots in a super cool <laughs> villa, and there is sort of a Dracula character vampire. Was this half whatever. the movies we watched, this description? Kind of, yeah. It did follow this odd theme that we saw of terrible movies in amazing locations. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure it's not hard in the Italian countryside to come across a cool villa that you can rent for cheap. Yeah, and they just sort of uh, peed all over it, is what it felt like. (laughs) Um, Again, it is a story that we know. It's essentially just a regular old vampire story. 
with an amazing setting that is totally undermined by the creator having nothing at all to add to the story and no characters of note or interest. I think, though, that there was one thing that you thought was interesting about it. Yeah, I would quibble a little bit with you classifying it as adding nothing to the genre. There was one thing it did in the third act that I really liked, and that was to subvert this damsel in distress angle that we usually see in the third act of vampire movies. In this case, it's the husband who needs the fainting couch for the final third. It's he that's been bitten. It's he that is weak. It's he that is helpless. All he needs to fit the mold is some sort of diaphanous gown. Yeah, it's the the women become the predators, really. It still does is not enough to make it interesting to me, though. Oh, I'm never going to watch it again. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but I did like that little twist. Thankfully, however, though, I think we came upon the biggest surprise of the whole month. Who shows up to save the day? Bob Clark shows up to save the day, as he often does. Because my next choice was Death Dream ostensibly from 1972, but I think released technically in 1974. But I'm going to stick with it for the purposes of our list. A family is informed that their son was killed in action in Vietnam, but lo and behold, to their surprise, he turns up at home, but he's not the boy he was when he left. It stars John Marley and Lynn Carlin with Richard Backus as the son Andy. And this truly was my highlight of the month. This was my favorite thing that we watched. Same for me. It's another riff on the monkey's paw, but in that tradition of the best George Romero films, the spooks are on the surface, and there's a lot more going on underneath. I was taken completely by surprise with this. And granted, I have to say, I haven't watched a lot of Vietnam films, and especially not Vietnam stories set during the actual Vietnam War. It was still going on in 1972. That's actually when my father was there. And there is so much going on. It is really well done, well written, incredibly interesting. You mentioned Lynn Carlin and John Marley, my favorites. I think the adult leads are especially fantastic in the Doctor character as well. Well, with Marley and Carlin, you've got Cassavetes alums, so you're not exactly slumming it. I think my favorite line was the I died for you. So it's the least you could do for me. That whole scene in the doctor's office is terrifying. Oh, yeah. But there's so much going on about how war changes you, the role of the nuclear family in all of this, how soldiers were treated upon their return home. Drug use during the war and after. And in addition to all that, Bob Clark really knows how to shoot the exterior of a house. Have I ever mentioned that to you? When you look at A Christmas Story, this, Black Christmas, he makes houses that feel like home which not everyone does. People often just quickly post an establishing shot, and it means nothing. Every time Bob Clark shoots the exterior of a house, I would like to live in that house. I want everyone to go out and watch this. I think you will thank us for it. Would they feel the same about the next one? Now, that is Tower of London, back to 1962. This ended up being a last-minute substitution which normally I wouldn't get into, but I feel like is kind of important for me to say. I feel a little bit compelled to say it. I had Cape Fear in there, the original Cape Fear, but I couldn't get through it. It was really feeling way too close to home in a very uncomfortable way that was making me quite agitated. It brought up a lot of really unpleasant memories for me. And so I said that as we were watching it, we ended up stopping and going to Tower of London. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm not going to make you watch anything that's going to make you feel that horrible. Except maybe aesthetically, like the Curse of the Headless Horseman. Right. But back to Tower of London, which I really enjoyed watching. I had never seen it before. You had. It's a Roger Corman, and it's got National Treasure Vincent Price in it. He will never, ever, ever let me down. How long have you associated Halloween with Vincent Price? Since you can remember, birth. probably? It's got to be birth. And if it hadn't been birth, then Thriller came along when I was very, very young mm. and would <laughs> submit it then. But Vincent Price never disappoints. I don't think that guy ever phoned anything in. And it would have been easy because they made this whole thing in 15 days. They did, but honestly, to me, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. It fully steals from, oddly enough, both Richard III and Macbeth. Vincent Price being Richard III in this, I think he's wonderful. I think essentially it's better than it has any right to be. It's better than anything made in 15 days has any right to be. That's absolutely true. 
However, if every other actor in it was as good as Vincent Price or the actress who played his mother, she has a moment that you absolutely love, I think it would be ultimately better regarded. But it still doesn't end up looking cheap or like a quickie thing. I mean, Roger Corman knows what he is doing. Well, he got to the point where he could crank these out in his sleep. Funnily enough, he called this the most foolish thing he ever filmed. But that has more to do with the shooting conditions than what ended up on screen, I think. It's not quite vintage Corman and Vincent Price. It's mid-tier. It does not quite live up to their Poe cycle, for instance. But it's still fun. It's totally worth a watch. Speaking of super fun, we have our third screening that we hosted, and this one was your choice. I chose Ghost Watch from 1992, which is an infamous, at this point, BBC television film directed by Leslie Manning with, as themselves, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, and Mike Smith. Now, the premise of this is that the BBC is conducting a paranormal investigation into the most haunted house in England. Based loosely on the case of the Enfield Poltergeist, a very famous case in the UK. Amityville-level famous in the UK. And so you've got these well-known TV personalities and this camera crew trying to find the truth of what's happening to this family in peril. Now, I've seen this at least twice before, and I think actually I was even more terrified this time than the other times I've watched it. Was that because it was with the audience? We had our group of friends and it actually heightened the experience a little bit? Maybe. Maybe it was extra dark. Maybe it was because I was sitting back and I felt like someone was behind me the entire time. Maybe it was the sound. My hair stood on end several times. I don't think I'm going to get tired of this one. I don't think I will either for a very specific reason. And it's funny that you mentioned Ex Libris at the top of the episode because every time we see a Frederick Wiseman documentary, I inevitably feel inspired. And I feel like, hmm, there is hope for humanity. I am so with you. I was thinking that same thing. But there's the other part of me, the dark passenger in me, that loves things like this and War of the Worlds that confirms my theory that I have long held that human beings are the dumbest, most gullible things you could possibly put together. Because this aired on Halloween night in 1992, and the BBC was inundated by people who were so angry and felt so betrayed that they believed that this was happening. Thousands and thousands of calls to the BBC switchboard. There's a great uh, little mini documentary on this as well where they showed what sort of felt like a Phil Donahue or Oprah-style chat show that was on afterwards where citizens could stand up and basically accuse the filmmakers of duping them <laughs> and traumatizing them for life. But if it had been me watching it as a youngster at that point, I would have been so happy and would have thought it was the greatest thing that had happened to me. Did you feel that way about the next decision you made? No, and I was so looking forward to this one. We both were. This was the biggest disappointment for me. It is. The Burning Court. We are back to 1962. Once again, it should have been better than it was, mm. I think. Directed by Julien de Vivier based on the novel by John Dixon Carr that was incredibly famous, well-respected. I've listened to the suspense episode on this many times. It's great fun. That pedigree with de Vivier and the source novel seemed like it should have been unimpeachable. We're about to impeach it, sadly. Okay. We've got a group of people, some relatives, some intermediate family, some extended family, the people who work with them, neighbors, who gather at their weird old family castle that has a dark past, and soon they start to get killed off. It stars Nadia Tiller, Jean-Claude Briali, and Perrette Pradier. Okay, so, the bad news is, it's at least 30 to 40 minutes too long. Mm -hmm, definitely. The, the suspense length is actually fantastic, I have to say. 30 minutes. It's populated by a bunch of dullards, and sorry, I will actually invoke the suspense episode again. To me, because of its length and that it dispenses with several of the characters that I think are completely extraneous, it's a lot tighter, and it also makes the supernatural angle clearer. They again have a great setting, this time in the Black Forest, that's totally wasted. I don't know what Julien de Vivier was doing. I don't know if he was undone essentially by this somnambulist cast of his, but it's not good. 
Plus, through no fault of the films, the copy that we had, the ending is quite famous. I don't know exactly what the ending is because there was a weird cut in the print, <laughs> so I actually still don't know. And everything that I try to read, people wanted to not include spoilers, which sucks. So I actually still don't know what the answer is. Do you think that dramatically affected, though, how you felt about it? Because I was already fed up with it by the time we got to that point. I think maybe it just made me throw something at that very end or look at you and scream what or what. It, yeah, it, it was not going to be redeemed then. I was trying to find at least something in each of these that was worthy of recommendation or discussion. And there was one great scene to me where at the old man's funeral, he had dictated that every one of his surviving relatives dance around his coffin, and that was a pretty macabre touch, I thought. I liked that. Didn't like much else. Well, thankfully, I redeemed myself, because then we have our regularly scheduled podcast episode on The Thing. That's episode 60, if you would like to hear the full outline of what we thought of that. So back to The Jack-O-Lantern, we next had Captain Clegg, back again to 1962 also known as Night Creatures, directed by Peter Graham Scott with Peter Cushing, Yvonne Romaine, and Oliver Reed. This centers around some 18th century English politics, a little bit of struggle between the king and also some illegal bootlegging and smuggling happening in a coastal town and the scary marsh phantoms. Now, we had already watched this at some point this year during Hammer Period, which we actually have a whole lot of. And it is great fun. I especially love the makeup and practical effects when we watch the Ghost Riders of the Marsh. It's also quite witty and smart, and it's got Peter Cushing, again, like Vincent Price. Peter Cushing is never going to let me down. And Peter Cushing playing with some subtleties that we don't often get to see in these Hammer characters. Often he is super good guy or possessed evil doctor. Here he is the redeemed former pirate, now clergyman, who is really the heart and soul of this village. So it's fun to get to see that character playing against its own history. I really like the history also of the Romney Marsh that's included in this story. And for once, the B romantic plot with the juvenile leads isn't completely distracting and useless, mainly because one of those is Oliver Reed, whose eyes are also unmistakable when he is hidden inside the costume of that scarecrow. I talked about how witty I think this is and, and how interesting that character is. I love to watch him put one over on this Royal Navy and their uptight characters. He's essentially like the Uncle Jesse of the Dukes of Hazard of Hammer film. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I guess so. You did mention that side love story. I think it's fun when you watch so many of these Hammer pieces. If you then go on to Curse of the Werewolf, Yvonne Romaine and Oliver Reed are love interests in Captain Clegg, but she then plays his mother in Curse of the Werewolf. Well, since we're talking about Hammer, we'll stick with that. For day 25, we're nearing the end here, but for day 25, we did Straight On Till Morning from 1972, once again directed by Peter Collison, about a timid young woman who is taking her first tentative steps out into the world only to walk directly into the path of a serial killer whom she takes for the love of her life. It stars Rita Tushingham and Shane Bryant, and I think this was another really pleasant surprise for me. Odd, I guess, that the romances stick out as the better films in this selection that we made this year. And what is so appealing about her is how effective she is in communicating this pathetic, palpable desperation. I know I said the thing about no basket cases, but I feel differently about this in that I don't feel like it's her fault. I feel like this character has been sheltered and protected too much, and she actually wants to be rid of that, and she's trying desperately to become her own woman, but just has not been equipped with the tools that she needs to do it. And all of that comes through in Rita Tushingham's excellent performance. As you mentioned, incredibly effective and affecting, her face is so likable and open you want to know who this person is, and not a basket case. I want to be her friend, even though it would be kind of frustrating, I think, but she does set out to do everything that she says she's going to do. This was also a surprise, like you mentioned, because I, for some reason, had thought going in that this was going to be a torture film. I don't know if it's because maybe I read something the wrong way, or I think, though, if you do look at the cover and the artwork, and even the menu, 
it suggests that it's going to be much more violent than it is. And this is really, I think, again, like neither the sea nor the sand, much more of an interior film. Is this the strangest film in Hammer's catalog, do you think? The farthest outlier, probably? I would have to say, though, of course, I'm no expert, but it certainly feels like it. And boy, they found the creepiest looking dude they could with Shane Bryant. I do want to come back to the point that I'd made earlier, and I feel like maybe I haven't quite hit on it enough, but we have really been blessed this month with amazing actresses and really interesting female characters covering the spectrum of experience. Especially notable, I guess, since we are also working within the stricter confines of just genre film. Well, did we have one of those in your next choice? Well, we've got strange and we've got weird looking (laughs) because we have Barbara Steele. Who, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but she won an Emmy with Dan Curtis. For? The Winds of War. I did not know that. Very, very odd. She was a producer on it. But let me actually talk about this film. Okay, which which, is? Which is The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock from 1962. Is The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock better than The Awful Dr. Orloff? Yes. I'm going to qualify this sort of yes. But actually, no, it is. It is better. Now, again, directed by our friend Ricardo Freda, much more interestingly directed than Tragic Ceremony. So you're saying he'd lost a step by 1972? I really think he was just tired or maybe busy or something. He just got his nephew to step in, I think. It's what I imagine happened. But anyway, the aforementioned Barbara Steele is in it with Robert Fleming. Now, this again is where I was struck by how much... These films in 1962, these creators got away with because the horrible Dr. Hitchcock is really into necrophilia. I think they would probably phrase it as sexy funeral games. I agree, though. I do like the depravity that it hints at. It is way more interesting than that. I have to atone for harming or disfiguring you in all of these other eyes without a face ripoffs. Because he is into it unapologetically, and his wife, his first wife that is, is very much into it until he accidentally kills her during one of these rites that they are doing. But she might not be quite dead enough when it comes to his second wife, Barbara Steele. Ultimately, I would say it is not great. I think the first part of it has much more promise, and I feel like it gets undercut by the time Barbara Steele comes in, because the dialogue is not so great, and her character is really not allowed to do much, and there is a super odd, awkward scene with Barbara Steele's character, this wife, and one of Dr. Hitchcock's protégés, he's basically seeing her home, and they have the most odd, stilted conversation, and yet we're supposed to believe that they basically fall in love at that point. Well, if he likes them dead, but not too dead, I guess... He maybe fell for her conversational skills because that's how it comes across. Yeah. So are we about to get any better with your next choice? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) This turned out to be a lot of disappointments. I don't know that we're going to do this this way again. My next choice was Necromancy from 1972, directed by the inimitable Bert I. Gordon. It should have been a tip-off. It certainly should. And I was hoping against hope that it would not turn out that way, but... He is terribly consistent, if nothing else. A couple move to a new town for a job, only to discover that it is all a front for a sinister coven with bad intentions for the wife. And that wife is one of my all-time screen crushes, Pamela Franklin, who has a horror pedigree better than almost anyone else's. In addition to her, the luminary Orson Welles and the less-than-luminary Michael Ankeen. Playing, potentially, the dumbest human I have ever seen on screen. And I'm not talking about, oh, he just makes poor decisions. I mean, this guy's just dumb. Which does not make for interesting viewing or interesting dialogue. It's a subpar fusion of Rosemary's Baby and 10 million other things that aren't even quite as good. And an antecedent to the equally lame The Love Witch from just a couple of years ago. That was lame. Ugh. And it's a real shame because with Pamela Franklin and Orson Welles... It's such a huge waste of talent. There is one affecting scene that I think I mentioned to you that, again, if I'm mining this for something that has something even slightly useful in it, it's about four seconds long. And Pamela Franklin has been called down to meet secretly with Lee Purcell at the riverside. She finds her body in the water, and to verify that it's her, she actually grabs the body by the hair to pull it gently along in the water as it floats. 
And that scene was terribly eerie because there was nothing tender or careful about how she was treating a corpse. And for a second, it was shocking enough for me to think, wow, that is a real thing. But everything else in it, no go. The only thing that I liked was the come here gesture that the little dead boy ghost has. That's also about two seconds. Thankfully, however, our next choice features a super cool little dead boy ghost. With an equally creepy gesture and fidget that he does. Our next choice was our finale screening for the month, Juon, The Grudge, from 2002, directed by Takashi Shimizu. One of the earliest and clearly the best of the 12 films now in the Juon cycle. Wow, I did not realize it was that many. It is about yet another haunted house in which yet another vengeful, angry spirit goes after one victim after another, each suffering a horrible death. It stars Megumi Okina and Masaki Ito, and it was a great way to round out our Halloween screenings, I thought. This was the pinnacle of scares as far as everything we saw this year. It's scary as hell. Sound design especially, I think, is the key with that. All the skitterings and scurryings and scratching and creaks, it's immaculately put together, especially when you see it in a theater. But even for home viewing, it is riddled with sounds that make you look over your shoulder. And there is one scene in particular in it that I will always remember, because the first time I went to see it, I saw it in the theater back in 2002. And this was a midnight showing at the Alamo Draft House, so this was hardened horror fans. This was not just a run-of-the-mill mainstream audience. But that scene where she is hiding in the bedsheets and something is happening in her room and she is suddenly jerked down about two inches towards the foot of the bed. I have never heard a theater full of hardened gorehounds gasp simultaneously and then break into a spontaneous ovation when the reveal happens under the sheets. It's fun to see something like that with a truly appreciative audience that is interacting with the film in the best way. And if for no other reason than that, I'm always going to fondly remember this movie. Even though, because of the year, this was completely outside of the theme that we chose, like all of those other selections that I like the most, it's the practical effects that stay with me. Even though that dark shadow effect is very, very cool, it's the faces and the eyes that get me. And of course, the placement of things and what the camera chooses to show us. And just like the point of this curse, that something terrible happens and then is revisited upon the next group of people and something terrible happens and it's never ending, that tension builds and builds and builds and these poor little terrifying small ladies, these terrible, terrible things happen and it is so scary and I can't wait to watch it again. However, one thing that I will never watch again <laughs> was back to you. Back to me for the unfortunate, misleadingly cool name of Three on a Meat Hook, directed by William Girdler and starring Charles Kissinger, James Carroll Pickett, and Sherry Steiner. This one is about a nice local boy who helps out four girls that have car trouble on their way home from the lake. I think we have clearly established that I really love weirdo regional cinema that is destined for the drive-in, perhaps, but this one was a total head fake. Two so-so set pieces on either end that flank an hour's worth of the most boring story of a yokel falling in love with a barmaid with a heart of gold that I've ever seen. It's a boring guy walking around Louisville listening to boring bands, having boring conversations with a boring lady. The best of these regional oddities just really push it to the extreme. They figure, we've got one chance to make this movie, let's make it as crazy as we can, let's put everything in it, this is the exact opposite of that. They're putting in all the stops. <laughs> the opposite of the, of the phrasing. <laughs> the best of these are just wall-to-wall -wall insanity. The worst of them, which is how I would classify this one, make me think of nothing but how much of a minor miracle the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. It basically boils down to an awfully expensive way to see some girls with their tops off. I do think, if anything, this was an exercise in highlighting... When somebody really knows what they're doing, you can tell. But you mean by contrast, not actually by what's on the yes, screen here. Yes, exactly. That those gems really do stand out because you can start to tell, okay, that's actually great writing. That's a great performance. That's a great direction. When you see example after example of 
what in the hell were you doing or thinking? Well, fortunately, you turned that around for us right here at the very end. And I'm kind of glad I saved this one for the end. I think it was a really good note to go out on, and that is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, my last in the 1962 series, directed by Robert Aldrich with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, about a former child actress who is tormenting her paraplegic sister. Now, if you've never seen it, do yourself a favor. Don't go by what it's essentially become or by the more famous parts of it that might get kind of made fun of or blown up. The camp elements of it. The camp elements of it. Because you've got two amazing actresses in it. There are so many terrific moments in this. All I could think the whole time was, God, everyone, can't you just hurry up a little bit because she could have been saved faster. But I digress. I love the moments when Betty Davis is talking about her fear of really not being loved or liked, especially by her new protege because of what she's done and if she's discovered. And that ultimate moment when she finds out that it was not she who crippled her sister and says, but we could have been friends this whole time. It's heartbreaking and I'm delighted that it's Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in this. My favorite character note, Betty Davis said that Jane was the kind of woman who never washed her face, but just put more makeup on. <laughs> so this was a true highlight, and I was so glad to come back to it. I know there's a lot of back and forth in the various Joan and Betty camps discussion about all this stuff, including Joan showing her up at the Oscars the next year, and whose contribution was better and all. Betty Davis's head and shoulders better than everyone else in this movie. And I like Joan Crawford an awful lot, but she is on a different level. She truly is. And I think Joan Crawford's contribution is fantastic. And I'm so glad that she played that character. And there are really effective moments in it. And I think she brings so much to it. But yes, Betty Davis is in the stratosphere. And I think they made each other better, really, at the end of the day. This is one of those that my father delighted in showing me early on, especially the reveals of the meals that she made for her. Oh, yeah. But anyway, when it comes down to the feud debate, I am squarely in the Betty Davis corner. And this film only further cements that. So I guess it falls to me to give us a little bit of dessert on the way out the door for Day 31. And for that, I chose the Spanish short film La Cabina from 1972, directed by Antonio Marcero and starring Jose Luis Lopez Vasquez. It was a short that was made for Spanish television, and it is brilliantly crafted, I think. It would fit perfectly, I think, in among the best of the portmanteau horror films or in that tradition of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes, but I think it has a darkness that sets it apart from even those. Ostensibly about a man who gets trapped in a phone booth that cannot get out, and I don't want to say any more about it than that because I'd like people to actually watch this and be surprised. Because it starts out almost kind of like sketch comedy a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's it's doesn't truly amp up the terrifying until well into it. It starts out one way and goes another. The best description I've heard of it, and this is absolutely true, is that it's a comedy that then starts peeling off its own face. It was a real find. Without giving too much of it away, I think the most frightening aspect of the whole thing is its utter randomness. He's an unremarkable man. He is not targeted. And for that reason, it is far more frightening than anything that could have been done to him on purpose. For now, you can see it on YouTube in its entirety, and I highly recommend doing so. It is 30 minutes that you will not regret. And that brings us to the end of our list. That is 31 Days of Horror for 2017. What are your observations coming out of our little experiment, 1962 versus 1972? I think, like you mentioned, we won't do it the same way again. I think we ended up feeling a bit hamstrung. Definitely. And looking back, I was so interested in, as I mentioned, how many of the films turned out to be so female-centric, so many great performances, and then a fair number of duds, sadly. But the highlights were big highlights. It's just that there weren't that many of them at least among the unknown quantities. We had a few in there that we knew were home runs with The Haunting, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I think what it served to illustrate for me, regardless of which decade, was that most movies aren't very good. But that is across genre. That's not strictly horror. That's sci-fi. That's romance. That's drama. That ratio applies across the board. And that being hamstrung that you mentioned, I think 
I definitely felt that. And at no other time as distinctly as when during these duds, I felt like "Mm, these people are just making a product to make a quick buck. There's no love. There's no artistry. There's no creative energy. This is a formula. This is pieces being plugged in. And so I could really see where people who don't watch a lot of really great movies probably feel like, eh, movies are a little disposable. They're like widgets in that regard when you're looking at something that's just made as product rather than as true art. That don't even reach the really low bar set for entertainment in a lot of cases. I think what it showed me, and to paraphrase MST3K a little bit, I think it's that sometimes some young filmmakers' visions should be stifled. Exactly. It's that Christopher Hitchens thing that everyone has a novel in them, and in most cases it should stay there. That's definitely how I felt about some of these. And I really love trash cinema. And you know what? I am all for the democratization of it. If you want to grab a camera and a group of friends and go out to Spawn Ranch Light and film something, that's totally fine. But I don't really want to watch it. So next year, Magic Jack-O-Lantern 2018, all puppy movies. All the time. (laughs) Which brings us to the end of episode 61. If you have yet to take a look at our Patreon, we would certainly appreciate it if you did that. That's at patreon.com slash magiclantern. We wrapped up Halloween with three specific spooky episodes. Lots of fun. I mentioned suspense quite a lot during the Burning Court entry, and we had a specific episode just on my favorite suspenses. Access to those bonus episodes starts as low as $5 a month, so if you would like extra content among the other things that we offer, please go take a look at that. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. Our friends over at Fuds on Film, Adam and Allie at the podcast So That's How It Ends, Matteo Boscarol, Grindhouse Dave, Tim Lego, and I wanted to say an extra special thanks to Andy Wolverton for sending us a super cool care package from the DC Noir City Festival. Thanks, Andy. We really appreciate it. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. Just about any podcatcher you use, you'll find us there. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>